Well, Genesis 39, fleeing sin as God's beloved child. A couple of chapters earlier, in chapter 37, we were introduced to Joseph, the 17-year-old son of Jacob, who favored Joseph most among his 12 sons. And some of you were here a couple of weeks ago when we were in Genesis 37. Well, this favoring of Joseph or of Jacob toward Joseph, it contributed, no doubt, to Joseph's brothers hating him and being jealous of him and cruelly selling him as a slave into Egypt. And chapter 37 ends uh, with Joseph's brothers deceiving their father Jacob, deceiving him to think that Joseph had indeed been killed, leaving Jacob overwhelmed and inconsolable in grief. Well, then last week we looked at chapter 38, and which was really something of an interlude, and it tells us of the depravity of one of Joseph's brothers named Judah. And the events of chapter 38 occur while Joseph is in Egypt, and it encompasses more than 20 years, chapter 38 does. And the chapter shows us Judah's depravity, but it also shows us how God's covenant promise prevails even amid such depravity. And so that brings us to chapter 39, which really resumes the story of what begins to happen to Joseph now that he's in Egypt. So let me pray again, and then I want to read all of chapter 39, and we'll look to what the Lord has for us. But let me pray. Our Father, you have given your word that we might know you through faith in Jesus Christ, and that we might live in the hope and the riches and the power of all of your spiritual blessings in Christ for all who believe. And so please help us and open our eyes now to see the wonderful things that you've revealed in your word. Please strengthen and purify our faith that we might be satisfied in you alone and thereby that we might flee from every seduction of sin that we're so easily tempted by. Please help me to be faithful and clear in proclaiming what you've revealed. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Well, let's hear God's word beginning with verse 1 of chapter 39. Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord, Yahweh, was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that Yahweh was with him and that Yahweh caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, over and over all that he had, Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of Yahweh was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of setup? Well, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. 
He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day by day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, verse 11, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Well, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But Yahweh was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because Yahweh was with him. And whatever he did, Yahweh made it succeed. This is the word of the Lord. So a question to begin with. Is God enough for you? Is God enough for you? Is God alone enough for you? And this is really the penetrating penetrating question that our text drives home for every single one of us. The events of the text and the broader context in which they occur reveal the supremacy and the sovereignty and the sufficiency of God over all human wickedness, and it reveals the supremacy and the sovereignty and the sufficiency of God for his beloved children. And through this text, God really interrogates each one of us with one loving question. It's as if God is saying, am I enough for you? And so I want to encourage you to let this question linger in your minds as we move through Genesis chapter 39. And the main lesson of this tragic but very hope-filled story, the main lesson is that God's beloved children flee the seduction of sin when they are satisfied in Him. God's beloved children flee the seduction of sin when they are satisfied in Him. 
It's really the lesson of the whole chapter. Now we're going to see this lesson and the piercing question that it asks by looking at everything in the chapter from two different perspectives. First, we're going to look at it from the perspective of God's mighty hand in Joseph's life. And then second of all, we'll look at it from the perspective of Joseph's growing faith in God. So first, from the perspective of God's mighty hand in Joseph's life. And then second of all, from Joseph's growing faith in God. And again, with the key lesson being that God's beloved children flee the seduction of sin when they are satisfied in Him. So let's jump in with this first perspective, that of God's mighty hand in Joseph's life. Now, as I've mentioned, Genesis 39 continues the story of Joseph that we were introduced to in chapter 37. And the long story of God's purposes with Joseph are going to continue through the end of chapter 50, the end of the book. And God's dealings with Joseph gets the most amount of airtime in the entire book. More so than Abraham, more so than Isaac, more so than Jacob. A lot of time devoted to God's purposes with Joseph. As I mentioned, chapter 37 tells how Joseph suffered greatly at the hands of sinners, particularly at the hands of his hateful and jealous brothers. And the result is at the end of chapter 37, Joseph is being taken down to Egypt and sold to a royal official named Potiphar. Now, this is what we're reminded of again in the very first verse of chapter 39, and it emphasizes by using this phrase twice that Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. There's a point why that is emphasized. He had been brought down to Egypt, and he was sold to this royal official named Potiphar. And this is what we're being reminded of again and seeing in verse 1. But then notice in verse 2, at the very beginning of verse 2, this puts everything into explicit and divine perspective. The Lord, Yahweh, was with Joseph. And this is directly indicating that all of Joseph's suffering was being governed by the mighty hand of God. God was providentially leading what was happening to Joseph. In no way minimizing the guilt and the accountability of the humans causing Joseph's suffering, but indicating clearly that God was with Joseph, ultimately leading Joseph the entire time. Now the presence of God's mighty hand in Joseph's life is prominently displayed in chapter 39 in a way that's intended to inform our understanding not only of what takes place in chapter 39, but of the rest of the story to follow. In other words, the emphasis on God's presence with Joseph is so clear and so strong that we're to recognize that the whole Joseph story, as we refer to it, is not mainly about Joseph, but it's about God's purposes and his work through Joseph. And this is vitally important to understand. You see, there's a much bigger picture that God is painting. There's a much bigger story that God is telling than just about his dealings with Joseph. 
And so chapter 39 is one important part of the story. It's one important episode in the story, but it's not the whole story. Now, I want you to notice how chapter 39 is framed from a literary perspective, the wisdom and the beauty and the design of what God has revealed through the human author Moses is amazing. Because at the beginning of the story and at the end of the story in chapter 39, there's this emphasis on God's presence with Joseph. And so verses 2 and 3 state that God was with Joseph, and that very truth is said again in verses 21 and in 23. And then also in verses 2 and 3, we're told that the Lord, that Yahweh, caused Joseph to succeed. And that is said again at the end of verse 23. And then verse 4 says that Joseph found favor in the sight of Potiphar. And verse 21 says he found favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So you see there's this symmetry going on in the narrative. Verses 4 and 6, or I'm sorry, 4 through 6, show how Joseph became the overseer in charge of all of Potiphar's house. And then, of course, at the end, in verses 22 and 23, we're told that he did the exact same thing while in prison. And Joseph's oversight was so excellent, uh, we're told in verse 6 that Potiphar had no concern about anything but the food that he ate, And then verse 23 tells us that the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. And the point is that we're to see very clearly at the beginning and at the end of the story that God's mighty hand was present with Joseph the entire time. And again, we're being shown this here so that we'll see that God's mighty hand will be with Joseph through the rest of his life until he dies at the very end of chapter 50. Now, this is so important for us to understand in the whole flow of what is going on and all that God is revealing because God first takes Joseph down to the depths before he lifts him up to the heights. He takes him down to the depths before he lifts him up to the heights. And we're to see that all of these early events in Joseph's life being governed by God's mighty hand, they're taking him on a downward path of descent. And this is a distinct motif. It's a distinct image that is spoken of in chapter 37 and referenced a few times leading up to and including where we're at in chapter 39. In other words, in chapter 37, his cruel brothers throw him down into a pit in the wilderness. And then he's sold into bondage to the Ishmaelites. And also in chapter 37, and again as it's spoken of at the beginning of chapter 39, again, Joseph was brought down into Egypt where he was sold into slavery to Potiphar. And then Joseph really hits rock bottom in verse 20 of chapter 39. When, after being falsely and deceitfully accused by Potiphar's wife of trying to essentially rape her, is what she's claiming, her her husband, Potiphar, throws Joseph down in the pit of prison. And so he's going down, down, down. God has him on this path of descent. And through no fault of his own, And in a manner that's completely out of control, out of his control, 
He's taken down into literally the lowest possible pit. That's what the story is revealing to us. And just think about this in terms of what Joseph was experiencing. Because of, uh, and beginning with his brother's vicious stripping of him, of his royal colored robe that had been given to him as his father. In chapter 37, they stripped him from that, of that robe. He then was systematically stripped of absolutely everything else about his life on earth. He was stripped of his family. He was stripped of his father's love. He was stripped away from his homeland. He was stripped of his freedom. He was stripped of his identity. He was stripped of his money and his material possessions, of his rights, of his reputation, everything absolutely stripped away. But you see, all of this is ultimately happening by the mighty hand of God that is with him, of which he was never stripped from God. And so Joseph greatly descended, but he would also greatly ascend. God put Joseph down into an impossible situation in order to raise him up to an improbable coronation. And as the story unfolds, as we're going to see in coming chapters, especially in chapter 41, God providentially brings Joseph to become the most powerful royal leader in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, in the most powerful country in the world at the time. It is an amazing story. But here's the key. Here's the key. Everything God is doing with Joseph's life in all of this isn't ultimately just about Joseph. And it's not even just about God's providential care and provision for Joseph. There's bigger things going on than just that. Certainly includes that and involves that, but it's not only about his providential care and provision for Joseph. In other words, it's not just a story about God helping a suffering guy and kind of taking him on a rags-to-riches journey. No, the Joseph story is not an independent little story with some good moral and spiritual lessons. No, the key to understanding everything that God does with Joseph is to understand it in connection with God's covenant promise plan to bring the blessing of salvation to the nations. You see, it's a story that's connected to God's whole story of redemption in the book of Genesis, but that encompasses all of Scripture. That's the significance of what the mighty hand of God is doing with Joseph. And so it's a story that's connected to God's covenant promises given to his chosen people, beginning with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and the descendants of whom from Abraham would eventually dwell in land that God had promised, a people that God would bless and use to be a blessing to the nations. And the essence of that blessing being the blessing of salvation to undeserving sinners. And so everything that God is doing with Joseph is all connected with this bigger picture, bigger story of redemption. And this is why then the Joseph story as it is, the, way, the, the reason why it unfolds as it does. 
Now, just a quick word about what, what, what we're going to anticipate in coming chapters. You see, Genesis chapters 37 to 41 really show how the mighty hand of God brings Joseph to power in Egypt. That's what chapters 37 to 41 are all about. And then chapters 42 through 47 show how the mighty hand of God bring Jacob and his whole family to dwell in Egypt. And then the final few chapters of Genesis show how both Jacob and Joseph eventually die in Egypt, and yet they die in covenant hope of being ultimately restored to God's promised land. And so that's just a brief overview of how the story ends, such as it is. And of course, it doesn't really end at the end of Genesis because it all leads into what's going to follow in the book of Exodus and everything else that follows. But in all of this, you see, in God's purposes with Joseph, which were worked out through God's promises, that were worked out through God's presence with him, and that were worked out through God's providential ordering of his circumstances, including his suffering, every detail of his life, in all of this, God was working to fulfill his covenant promises to all his people. And in eventually bringing Jacob's whole family to Egypt, God was working to preserve his promised people from extinction because of famine that was going on in the land. He was also working to protect and to purify his promised people from idolatry due to intermarriage with pagans, which Judah had exemplified in chapter 38. And he was also working to pardon and to restore unity among his promised people who had become divided through hate and jealousy, through all that transpired between Joseph's brothers and himself. And so, I share all of that for us to see that, yes, Genesis 39 ends with Joseph at rock bottom in a prison pit. And yet the beginnings of his God-ordained ascent are evident as God remains with him, as God shows steadfast love to him, as we're told near the end of the chapter, as God gives him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison, and as God makes everything that Joseph does succeed. This is all kind of whetting our appetite for what's going to come next as God, little by little, and over a period of a number of years, is going to bring him to that place of ascended prominence at Pharaoh's right hand. And so the mighty hand of God is at work in Joseph and through Joseph to fulfill his promised plan to bless the nations through his chosen people. And so this is the divine perspective that we need to see and to be aware of and have some sense of how this connects with the whole picture, the whole story that God is revealing in his word. Well, in all of this, let's move to this second perspective for us to consider in the events of chapter 39, and that is how we see Joseph's growing faith in God. Not only do we see something of the mighty hand of God in Joseph's life, but we also see Joseph's growing faith in God on display. And so in this, God wants us to see that his supreme, sovereign, sufficient, mighty hand is governing everything. But he wants us to see this not just as a matter of nice information for us, but so that we'll have faith in this God, 
who is supreme, who is sovereign, who is all-sufficient. He wants to bolster our faith so that we will trust Him, so that we will obey Him, so that we will be satisfied in Him alone, and thus so that we will flee when the seductions of sin are faced by us. So that we'll be so content and so confident in God's faithful love and in His presence with us that whatever our circumstances will resist and we'll flee from every seductive temptation towards sin. Well, this is what we see exemplified in Joseph's life. His growing faith in God that empowers him, that empowers him to flee from sin. And again, though Joseph had been stripped of everything from a human perspective. We can't even begin to imagine what it, what, what it must have meant for him to experience what he experienced. Though he had been stripped of it all, cruelly and unjustly taken down to Egypt, it's clear that he persevered through faith in God. He persevered through faith in God. No doubt Joseph had faith in God's earlier promises to him, which came in the form of these dreams that he had in chapter 37. And if you just turn back to chapter 37, and we'll pick it up in verse 5 of chapter 37, where Joseph, perhaps unwisely, and maybe with a little sense of bragging, uh, tells his brothers about these dreams, two different dreams he has. So chapter 37 and verse Five, we read, as soon as I can get my pages unstuck, we read, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us or are you to indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then verse 9, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when they told it to his father, but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Joseph understood that even though he maybe didn't manage and handle these dreams in the wisest of ways, that God was nonetheless promising to him through these dreams that he was eventually going to come to a place of prominence. And so Joseph had faith in these promises. I believe Joseph also had faith in God's earlier covenant promises that had been given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph no doubt was familiar with those. In fact, near the very end of his life, near the end of chapter 50, he, he exhorts his brothers to take his bones to Canaan, to the promised land, when he dies in view of the promises that had been given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph was familiar with those promises, and he trusted those promises. He also had faith in God's presence with him as he no doubt would have heard the stories about God's presence with Abraham, God's presence with Isaac, and God's presence with his own father, Jacob. He would have trusted in those promises. 
And not only would he have trusted in God's presence, I should say, as well as his promises, but Joseph also had faith in God's providence. Joseph had faith in God ordering his circumstances, even in the horror and the suffering that he experienced. And so it's interesting, some 22 years later, when Joseph uh, reveals himself to his brothers in chapter 45, listen to what he says to them in chapter 45, verses 4 through 9, that indicates his faith in God's, prom- in, in, in God's providence. He says uh, in verse 4, I'm sorry, in verse 5 of Chapter 45, now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So do you hear how Joseph is expressing his faith in God's providence? Not diminishing the evil and the wickedness that his brothers had brought upon him, but he acknowledges God is the one who did all of this. God is the one who sent me before you. And so we see evidence of Joseph's faith that he no doubt had when he was in the pit in prison back in Genesis 39. He had faith in God's promises. He had faith in God's presence. He had faith in God's providence. And so there's a clear sense that Joseph had this genuine and growing faith and that he was secure in that faith with God. He was secure in God as a beloved child of God. In other words, God was enough for him. And despite his suffering, despite the the, the trauma of all that he experienced and the pain of all that he experienced, God was enough for him. So how do we see the fruit of Joseph's faith in chapter 39? Well, of course, the fruit of his faith is displayed in how he responds to the repeated temptations from Potiphar's wife. The repeated temptations that probably stroked his ego. He was a handsome man, and he was a man of prominence, of course, in Potiphar's house. And to be approached and to be appealed to by his wife could have tempted him for his pride and for his self-love. But we see the conviction, the resolved conviction of his faith. When he says in verse 9, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And you may ask the question, well, how did he know that this would have even been sin against God? Is there anything said in the narrative of Genesis up to this point that for him to do any such thing would indeed be sin? I think the answer to the question is, even though there wasn't an explicit command stated that way, he knew and he understood in his conscience, because God's law, God's word, God's will is written on the conscience, on the heart of every human being. So he knew in his heart it would be wicked. He knew in his conscience it would be sin against God for him to cave in to the appeals of Potiphar's wife. And then even when this adulterous woman relentlessly pursues him, and the sense of the text is that this was just an ongoing temptation that he was dealing with, 
even to the point of grabbing his garment, his faith is indicated in the fact that he doesn't try to reason, he doesn't try to explain, he doesn't try to appeal. What does he do? He does what everyone should do when we're tempted. He fled. He ran. He didn't give it an ounce of thought. He got out of there as quickly as he could. Now, sadly, as we know, and yet within God's good and wise providence, within the leading of God's mighty hand, this woman maliciously and falsely accuses Joseph. Nonetheless, with his garment involved, which echoes the fact that his own brothers had deceived their father with his apparent death by using his garment. It's striking imagery that's repeated. But she accuses him falsely. She deceives falsely. And he's cruelly promoted, as it were, from being a slave to now becoming a dishonored prisoner. But as we've seen at the end of chapter 39, Joseph continues to trust the presence and the steadfast love of Yahweh. And he continues to give evidence of his faith by being content and faithful in the hard and painful circumstances that God had ordained for him. He just keeps trusting and he keeps being faithful and God keeps blessing and God keeps providing and God keeps causing him to succeed. And so you see, friends, we're to learn from and we're to imitate the example of Joseph. God's beloved children flee the seduction of sin when they are satisfied in him. We flee the seduction of sin when they are satisfied in Him. And so, Joseph exemplifies the soul-satisfying, sin-fleeing life of faith of a beloved child of God. This is what he exemplifies. And I want to just highlight a a few other places in Scripture where we see this soul-satisfying, sin-fleeing life of faith spoken of. There are myriads of ways we can see this throughout Scripture, both by way of exhortation as well as by way of example. Let me just mention a few of them. First, in Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11. The psalmist asks there, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word, he answers. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That's a life of faith being lived out. Soul satisfying, sin fleeing. Over in Proverbs chapter 23, verses 26 through 28, listen how the writer of Proverbs, most likely Solomon, exhorts his own son. And this is ultimately as if God exhorting his children. He says, my son, verse 26 of Proverbs 23, my son, give me your heart. And let your eyes observe my ways. There's a footnote there that that word could also be translated delight in my ways. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes delight in my ways. Why? Verse 27, for a prostitute is a deep pit. An adulteress is a narrow well. 
She lies in wait like a robber and increases the traitors among mankind. What's the preventative? Faith in letting your heart be given to the Lord as His child, being secure and content in His love for you, delighting in who He is, delighting in His ways, and thus being guarded and kept from such an adulterous woman. And of course, the many different manifestations that adultery can take in our lives and in our world today. This, of course, this soul-satisfying, sin-fleeing faith is what is at the heart of the exhortation that was read earlier from Ephesians chapter 5. Did you notice the first two verses of Ephesians 5? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, the Apostle Paul here is building on everything he's already been speaking of from chapter 1 up to this point. And so when he speaks of believers as beloved children, there is a richness to that. There is a depth to that. There is an immeasurableness to what it means to be known and to be loved by God the Father through God the Son. And so it's as beloved children that we are to seek to imitate God and to walk in that very love that as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. And then, of course, the warning and the exhortation against all sin in a general sense, but in a specific way, sexual immorality in verse 3. And all impurity or covetousness, it must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And then, of course, he goes on to bolster his exhortation about the evil and the wickedness of these things. But it must all be understood in terms of how dramatically contrary it is to the holy, gracious, glorious love of God in Christ. And that we're to be motivated not out of guilt, not out of a fear of punishment, But as God's beloved children, whom He has chosen from before the foundation of the world, as Paul says in chapter 1, bought by the blood of Christ, adopted as His children, brought into the fullness of all the spiritual blessings that He's given, it's knowing who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ as God's beloved children, that should compel us and motivate us to flee from all seduction of sin. And of course, there's a specific word regarding sexual sin because it is so insidious and our flesh can so easily be drawn to it in so many different ways, let alone in our mind, let alone with our eyes and what we watch on the internet or in other places, let alone with our thoughts. It's the heart of God for us to know the fullness of his love, to walk in the fullness of his love, and in and through faith in the fullness of his love in Christ and all that he's given us, then so to please him and to honor him and to be filled with thanksgiving and joy and gratitude and and a resolve to flee what is evil and to pursue him and to pursue what is good. Now, that's a powerful passage there in Ephesians 5, isn't it? And even as you heard it read earlier, even as I've made, re- made reference to it now, it may feel somewhat like a sledgehammer, just, just 
banging down on the conscience of our souls. Because we all can be vulnerable to sin in myriads of different ways. But did you notice how this exhortation ends in verse 14? Let me read it again. He says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is an invitation, and Paul is drawing on language from a number of different passages near the end of the prophet Isaiah. When he uses the term awake, and when he uses the term arise, and when he speaks of of, of Christ ultimately being the light that will shine on you. Friend, what it is, is it's a call to repent. It's a call to wake up, to have your conscience awakened to the reality of God's holiness and His goodness and His mercy and His love and His grace. To be awoken to that afresh. And the sense of arising means to repent to turn from your ways, to turn from your sin, and to look to Christ. And the promise is Christ in all that He is, in all of His glory, in all of His sufficiency, in all of His saving work, He will shine on you. Now there's debate among scholars about whether or not this exhortation of verse 14 is being proclaimed to believers or to unbelievers. In other words, whether or not it's a call to saints who have perhaps become entangled with sin or maybe to those who have never come to faith in Christ in the first time. Well, in one sense, it obviously would apply to everybody, but I think the context of the whole letter of Ephesians, as well as the immediate context of what Paul's addressing here in chapter 5, is he's primarily got Christians in mind. Christians who have become entangled in many different forms of sin, perhaps specifically even in the context, sexual sin. And the invitation and the call is, wake up, recognize the reality of your sin in light of the glory and the goodness and the greatness and the love of God in Christ. See it for what it is. And it would carry that connotation and implication of being broken, but then arising repenting, confessing your sin, and coming to Christ and knowing that He forgives, and knowing that He cleanses, and knowing that whatever you've been involved with, whether it was 40 years ago, or whether it was 40 minutes ago, that this instant, you can know forgiveness, you can know cleansing, you can know restoration, you can know all the glory, all the blessings, all the goodness, all the mercy of Christ in your life right now. That's the sense of awake and arise and Christ will shine on you. And I think that whole imagery, in fact, is marvelously, beautifully pictured in Luke chapter 15 in the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells. This son who wanted nothing to do with the father. He only wanted the father's inheritance. And he takes it. He goes away to a faraway country because he wants to get as far away from the father as he can. And what does he do? He just spends it all. He lives as, as he wants. He indulges every craving and desire of the flesh. And he eventually comes to the consequences of all of that. And it all crashes down on him. And he ends up eating pig food with the pigs. And it's at that moment that you know what happens? We're told in verse 17 that he comes to his senses. It's another way of saying he awoke to the reality of what he had done 
and what he had given up in rebelling against the Father and in pursuing his sin in the way that he wanted it. And then you know what the text tells us there in chapter 15, verses 17 through 24, is not only did he come to his senses, but you know what he did? He arose and he went to his father being willing to to maybe just have the life of a hired slave by his father. And of course, the whole point of the story is to show the extravagant, overwhelming compassion and mercy and grace of the father, who, when the father sees him coming, runs to meet him and wraps his arms around him and throws a celebration because this son of his who was lost has now been found. And so, beloved, that's a picture of of not only what happens when a person comes to faith in Christ for the first time, but it's also a picture of what can happen if you are a Christian who has come to faith in Christ and you've got yourself entangled in all kinds of sin. The call, the offer, the invitation, the enticement is, awake, arise, go to the Father in confession and, 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 and call out to Him, He will forgive. He will cleanse. He will wrap His arms around you. Christ will shine on you. And so, beloved, this is what we see happening in essence with Joseph, isn't it? By faith, he flees the temptation. He runs from the sin. And so what happens at the end of the chapter, even though in a human sense he's thrown into prison, what's happening? Yahweh is shining on him. Yahweh is still with him. Yahweh is keeping him. And of course, all of this, of course, anticipates God's care and provision in Christ, which all of the covenantal promises point to, they're fulfilled in Christ. And so, beloved, faith exemplified in Joseph is what God calls us to as his children, to walk in love as his beloved children and seek to please the Father, seek to imitate the Father, and seek to walk like Jesus. And so in all of this we see that God's beloved children flee the seduction of sin when they are satisfied in him. And I'll leave it to you to tease that out even more, but if you're inclined to try to find satisfaction in sin and try to fill yourself up with joy and contentment and gladness of heart and fullness of life in sin, I would just ask, how's that working for you? It doesn't satisfy, does it? No, because it's wickedness, because it's against God, it's against His holiness, His righteousness, His goodness, and His love. And so that brings us back to the question I asked at the very beginning. Is God enough for you? Is God alone enough for you? This is a penetrating question and it drives home to every one of us because faith and hope are to be found in Jesus Christ. Well, as we draw this to a close, it's very interesting that Joseph's descent, as I have spoken of, and his eventual ascent in the providences of God. Even within all of that, what do we know about Joseph? Well, what we know is that he still inevitably died. This was at a human level. He descended and also ascended. In fact, the very last words of the book of Genesis are incredibly poignant. Chapter 50, verse 26. 
They tell us, so Joseph died, being 110 years old, they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That's how the book ends. And it tells us that the life of Joseph actually is pointing to a greater Joseph. It's pointing to a greater Joseph who also descended and now has ascended and lives and reigns forever. This is Jesus, of course. Paul spoke of Jesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, when he said, In saying he ascended, Jesus, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? And he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So you see the descent of Joseph and the ascent of Joseph is something of a type that points to and it pictures that which is fulfilled in Christ. Paul also speaks of this in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. He says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's his descent, if you will. But then verse 9 of Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He had descended in humility, and God ascended him in glory and exaltation. And that, by the way, Because it is evidenced in the life of Christ, even as we see it prefigured in the life of Joseph, is the path that God always takes his people on as long as we're in this earth. Every step we take in this earth is, as it were, a step of descent. It's a step of humiliation. It's a step of suffering. It's a step of difficulty. But we anticipate that day when with Christ we will be risen up with him in glory. And that's our hope. And so, brothers and sisters, though we long for our faith to grow so that we're more confident as God's beloved children and so that we're more satisfied in Him and more content in Him, and also in that so that we're more quick and resolved and radical in fleeing every seduction of sin, even though we long for our faith to grow in that way, if we are redeemed, it's important to remember that our hope is not in our faith, right? Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. The one who loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Amen and amen.